was cool. My, my wife and I are standing there worshiping, and we were taken back by some girls in front of us that were singing and worshiping as well. It's really cool when you got fourth and fifth graders just getting their worship on in front of you. It's pretty, pretty neat. So that, that ministers to us. And Ross was saying that last week too. With, I'm going to walk this thing up very gently like this. There we go. This thing's heavy, by the way. So it's pretty cool how when we worship and we sing songs of hymns and thanksgiving, how we're, we're ministering to each other. It's pretty neat, pretty amazing how God does that. So thank you to those three little girls in front of us this morning. It's pretty cool. Um, stay in 1 Corinthians 6, but, but here's what we find in this letter today is that the church can be messy at times. Things can get rough when you, you throw sinners together, people who know um, maybe Jesus now, uh, but still don't always do things right or maybe treat each other rightly. And, and so when you read Scripture and you read places like Acts chapter 2 or you read places like Acts 4, in fact, let me read to you Acts 4 with you, not the whole chapter, but verse 32. It says, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart. They had unity and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. They freely gave to each other. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each uh, um, as any had need. And so here we see this, this picture of, of the church, but the church isn't always like that, right? And so here you see this picture of the first century church and, and what things were like, but then you turn to the pages of 1 Corinthians, right? And the issues in 1 Corinthians don't look um, like Acts 4, does it? Oh, it's pretty messy. In fact, we read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, Paul says, Brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I exhort you that you all would agree. Why is he doing this? He says, and that there be no divisions among you, because they were divided over things. But that you would be made complete in the same mind and judgment, he says. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, through a letter, that there are quarrels among you. It doesn't sound like Acts chapter 4, does it? It doesn't. In fact, in Corinth, what we find in the first century is quite opposite. Uh, there were a lot of struggles, a lot of disputes over apostle authority or superiority. and We've seen that in chapter 1 and, and on. There's disputes over sexual morality, what, what is right in regards to that. Lawsuits, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. Um, marriage, 1 Corinthians 7 is, is a long chapter about that. Eating meat, head coverings for women. So we're going to get into some of this stuff. It's going to be fun over the next few weeks. Uh, the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts. This is going to be fun. Um, the resurrection of Jesus is going to be dealt with. The resurrection of believers uh, is going to dealt, be dealt with because there's disputes in the church in Corinth over these things. But, but here's 
the purpose of disputes. Here's the purpose of, of conflict that Paul tells us, because wh- why do they exist, okay? And, and especially why do they exist in the church? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, this, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What he's basically saying here, there's got to be conflict and disputes among you. There's going to be because we, 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 we aren't um, you know, completely perfect yet, obviously. Um, but he says there's disputes, there's conflicts, and, and here's why. Okay? To, to, to show who is approved or, or to show who's genuinely saved and who's genuinely not saved. Okay? And so that's why there's conflicts. It's because how we deal with those, how we deal with disputes, reveal who we really are in Jesus Christ, who we aren't. And so in life, we're going to face conflict, disputes for various different reasons. And scriptures address how to handle that in different places. How do we deal with conflict, and specifically here in the church? And so the church in Corinth, though, they ignored God's wisdom. And that's what chapter 1 through chapter 4 really is all about. And they tried to address such problems with worldly means. They would go outside the Word of God. And so Paul here today, and especially verse 2 and 3, with great wonder, and I believe great awe, is going to get our attention to remind us um, that we are spirit-filled Christians, and that because of that, we should handle conflicts and disputes um, in a specific way, not in the way of the world. And so I think Paul wants us not to forget who we are in Jesus, remember that we handle conflict with our brothers and sister, sisters according to God's way and not the world's way. We are to be different. We're to be different. We're to be the light of the world. And so we handle things different. Even though we're in the world, we're not of it. And so look at chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to see three parts here. We're going to see the church in conflict. okay, And, and then we're going to see um, the judging saints, which is an interesting statement. And then um, we're going to see at the end here who we are and how that impacts greatly what we do and don't do. Okay? So look at the first part here, the church and conflict. Listen to what he says. And so here's what Paul's going to do. Through the first seven verses, he's going to give these rhetorical questions. He's almost, he's almost acting like a lawyer maybe in a way. And so these questions um, have obvious answers to them. They're kind of like, duh, all right? And he, like he did a few weeks ago, is going to, not, not hold back any punches. He's going to say some one-liners here that are perfect, all right? That'd be great. And so look at verse 1. He says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And, and so Greek society loved to take issues of different sizes, different dis- sizes of disputes that were going on, they love to take it to the courts. They love to, to deal with legal matters. And, and so when people in Corinth had disputes with each other, they, they wanted the courts to get involved. And so they would go down to the center of the, the city or the town to the judgment seat. And, and they would have the courts uh, try to uh, be this arbitration uh, or, or, or to work things out. And so people loved to do that. In Greek society. And so Paul addresses that here. 
uh, and wants to make a point, uh, an answer that is, that is privy uh, obvious here uh, about how we handle conflict and dispute within the church. And so he says they have a case, okay? So there's this legal matter. There's this action uh, of legality. There's, there's this lawsuit or there's this dispute uh, that is present. And, and he says it's, it's with your neighbor, okay? Uh, the context here means it's with another believer. It's with a fellow believer in Christ. And so what should they do? He says here they should not go before the courts, and what are the courts filled with? He says right here, the unrighteous, right? Unrighteous judges, the wicked judges. Why would you want to take your conflict within the body with another believer to an unrighteous judge? Instead, Paul says here they should handle such matters within the church. I love the language he uses here. He says, does any one of you dare to go, Okay. Why would you do this, okay? Paul seems it to be silly to handle conflict in such a matter, and he's going to explain why. Look how he does. He's going to cause us to look to the future of our destiny, of what is to come as believers, and that we would have a kingdom mind about the things of life. And so look what he says here in verse 2 through 3, and he's going to call us... um, to, to, to judge, but when we do is important, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? And so these trivial issues that you're having, are, are you not smart enough, is basically what he's saying, to handle that within the body of Christ? And then look at verse 3. He says, do you not know that we will judge angels? Hello. Wow. Okay. How much more matters of this life? And so I, I find these two verses amazing here. This is very interesting. We're gonna, the church is going to judge the world. They're going to judge unbelievers. And then the church one day is going to judge angels, according to Paul. And so this this is great wonder, this is great awe, this is great mystery. Oh, okay, Paul, you got our attention. And so what does all this mean? Let me take you kind of on a, kind of a scripture journey just for a little bit, some satellite text. John chapter 5, verse 27, listen to what it says about Jesus. It says, the Father gave Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. All right, Son of Man term, when you go back to Daniel 7, we see that there. And so the Father has given Jesus authority to execute judgment. So what does it say about Jesus? That he has all authority over everything, and he is the judge. That's who Jesus is. That's who our king is. That's who our savior is. And then in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says, he who overcomes, okay? Context of Revelation, the, the overcomer is, is a genuine believer, all right? And so Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me, Jesus says, on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And so we will get to sit with Jesus, who rules the universe, on the throne of God in the future. Isn't that pretty amazing? Pretty awesome. But that's our destiny. And look at what he says next. In Revelation chapter 2, 26, Jesus says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. 
That's amazing. And then look at 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. Paul says this, if we died with Jesus, we also will live with him. Or, and if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny Jesus, we also, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. But go back to that, that verse uh, 12. If we endure, same language of, of Revelation there, we will also reign with him. And so here's what Jesus says to the church, to believers. He says, we will reign with Jesus, and if we have any help in judgment, it will be in participation in the rights and the authority that Jesus has. And so believers, he says here, will judge the world. Now, we saw a couple weeks ago that um, we do not do that right now. (laughs) Do you remember that? Go back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You remember what he says? He says in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous, the swindlers, idolaters, for then you would have to go outside of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is immoral person, covetous, idolater, reveler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But listen to what it says in verse 12. For what I have to do, what do I have to do with judging outsiders. Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. And then he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so right now, Paul says, we do not judge the outside world. God does that. We judge each other within the community. We hold each other accountable, right? And that doesn't mean there's not going to be issues where we deal with injustice in the world and things like that. I mean, obviously we, we do that. But our job is not to be judgmental of the world. Our job is to love the world. Our, our job is to hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world and to model that as a church to the world. But he says here in the coming kingdom, right? When Jesus returns in the consummation of history and the kingdom of God, Christians will participate in judging unbelievers. Now, what is that going to look like? Man, I'd be honest, I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue what that's going to look like. But I do know that one day when Jesus returns as the judge, he will judge us all. There will be a time of judgment for the believer based on what we've done in Christ, right? And for the unbeliever, right, where they stand with Christ. And obviously there will be rewards given to believers and obviously judgment in hell for unbelievers, that that will happen. Now, what all this looks like, okay, Scripture doesn't give us a clear picture of what this looks like, but Paul says we will do this. And there's a point to why he's saying this, okay? There's a point to why he's saying this. But I want to see the other thing he says. In verse 3, he says this, Do you not know that you will judge angels? Right? It's an interesting, interesting statement. How we'll judge angels is not exactly revealed to us, right? There's not a lot of supporting text in this on, on how this will look or what this will look like. Uh, Paul says this. Paul says it. He, he speaks uh, by means of the Holy Spirit. And so this is given to him by the Holy Spirit. So it's the truth of God that one day this will happen. And, and so what does this mean? When you think about angels, you think about, oh, man, angels are perfect, perfect, good, in the worshiping God and the presence of God. So it can't be 
those angels, right? Okay, so it must be real simply bad ones, right? Listen to what Jude chapter 6 says. Jude 6 says, angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And so I would think what Paul has in mind here, what Jude is speaking about, align. And it seems here that those angels who have fallen, i.e., they're demons now, they have disobeyed God. Uh, they, according to what Jude says right here, one day will face a judgment. And it seems here that we will be a part of that. And so let's think about this for a second. And, and, and they had a role, demons do today. Okay? They have an active role in tempting us and going after us according to the enemy's purpose, Satan's purpose. What is Satan's purpose? John 10.10. 10, to steal, kill, and destroy. And that is what demons participate in. Okay? And so I love what Run Rider says here with this idea of what maybe this looks like in the judgment to come and especially when it comes to these angels that have fallen, their demons. It is though we become a witness of their final condemnation by saying, this is how I experienced demonic assault from you. And we're witnesses to that. And so you are then a witness to their increasing guilt. So that's maybe a possibility of maybe what that looks like. But I think Paul brings this up for this purpose too. To remind us that our struggle, as he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. We hang out to there, uh, there too much, <laughs> and we think maybe that way too much. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And that point right there should help us when it comes to conflict and disputes with each other in itself. That's not our struggle. But instead, he says in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, but it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan and his legion are pursuing us, trying to assault us to make us fail when it comes to our witness of Jesus Christ. They want to steal, kill, and destroy and Paul says one day, as witnesses, we will be a part of those who witness to their attempts against us. And so we will judge them. And so what's Paul's point for bringing this up? His point is, I believe, is that when believers are in conflict with each other and are being tempted to settle conflict with each other with worldly means, we should rather, because of this, settle conflict as spirit-filled Christians with godly means instead within the church. And so as Christians, we should be able to handle disputes between each other because guess what? We have the help of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we have the Scriptures, God's wisdom. That's what we have. That's what we have. And so look at verse 4 through 6. Paul continues with this line of questioning. If you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. You see what Paul's doing here? 
Paul asked, didn't he ask a couple weeks ago, do you want me to be gentle or to come with a rod of discipline? I don't know what, I don't know what you call this. All right, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Basically what he's saying here is, hey, is there is not one among you in the church who is smart enough to handle things like this? He's, he's calling the church in Corinth out. So in light of this, Paul tells believers in Corinth that they should be able to have peace with each other over disputes and work it out instead of going to court. Now, I will say this, and, and, and I just before I made this statement, I was just kind of trying to see what others said about this to make sure, bless you, when I make this statement that, that one, it, it's an alignment with, with, with what I believe is true, and I believe it is, that what Paul is saying here I think we have to be careful with a a sweeping statement over everything because there may be issues. There may be, right, issues that that mean we have to handle it with courts within the church. So I think we have to be careful. I I just don't want us to to hear this and and, and say, what about this and what about this and what about this? And and see, the point Paul is saying is is we should. we, We should be able to handle it, right? And so Paul argues that the least qualified believer is in a better position than an unbeliever to handle church disputes. That's what he's saying. And so in all of this, as believers, I think there's a few things we've got to remember. And to do this, what I want you to do is is just hear what Jesus says. Because I think the Beatitudes, if if you read chapter 5 through 7 of Matthew, you, you hear really what, what Jesus wants for the church, how we're to handle things, how we're to view life in this world. And so I just want to read to you one part, okay? In Matthew chapter 5, it's not up on the screen, so just maybe write this address down. Chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. You see that attitude? Do you see that, that heart? And I think that's the attitude that Paul is going after as well. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Right? Then he says, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. I, I think we see the attitude of, of what Jesus longs for us to have. And then in Matthew 7, verse 12, he says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Right? And so that's the spirit, I think, of what Paul is going at here. And so of all of this, I think Paul is saying, as believers, we should not return evil for evil. We must check our motives when we're dealing with conflict within the church. And then look at verse 7 through 8. Listen to what he says here. He continues to question. He says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. You hear that? Paul says, even though this, this hadn't been figured out in the courts, even though your lawsuits hadn't been finalized, he says, you've already lost. This is what he says to believers. You've already lost. He says, why not be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? 
On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Paul reminds them they've already lost before the judge gives the verdict. The shame of people who profess to love one another and put the welfare of others before their own suing each other was a defeat in itself. So what is lost? I mean, think about this. You've got two believers in a dispute, in a conflict. They, they take this to the courts. So you picture this in Corinth. They take this. They, they march this through the town. They go to the judgment seat. They, so, so people are there. People see this. The judge rules about this. So, so what is defeated? What is lost? Their witness, right? Their witness. It's a defeat, Paul says. This defeat was far more serious than any damages they may have had to pay. And so what is he saying here? Our disputes, our conflict should not be taken to public courts. And then also, we must be on the guard, he says, of how we treat each other. Because he says here, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Paul says, abuses toward each other, cheating each other, injustices toward each other should not exist in the church. So we go back to Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we hear that over and over and over and over in Scripture. And Paul says, listen to the wisdom of God. And then he does this. Look at this. We're going to wrap up here. Look at chapter 6. Look at verse 9. Look what he says. He's going to tell us and remind us who we are and how this impacts how we live and how we handle things. Okay? And listen to what he says in verse 6. Or, excuse me, verse 9 of chapter 6. He says, or do you not know? It's the third time he, he has said that statement, right? Okay? Why, why, why is he using that phrase, right? It's interesting. I, I, th- I think this is in part of this idea uh, that he says in verse 4, I say this to, sh- to your shame, right? You should know this, right? You should know this, but you're showing you don't by the way you act. And so look what he says in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, so what's he doing here? I believe he's going back up to verse 1 where he's mentioned the uh, unrighteous and where he, he said this in verse 1 where he said, does any one of you when he has a case against his brother dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And so he's continuing this line of thought and thinking. So he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't be deceived, neither. Fornicators, that's the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, those who worship other gods, little g gods, okay? Nor adulterers, okay? Those who, who um, have sexual activity outside of marriage, cheat on their spouses, nor uh, effeminates or effeminates or however you want to call that, um, those who act effeminate, uh, men acting as women, passive homosexuals, however you want to phrase that there, uh, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, those who are verbally abusive, nor swindlers, robbers, those who commit extortion, cheaters, will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And so I, why is he saying this? And I, I think there's two reasons. I think there's two reasons. I think the first reason, in context of what we've been talking about, is he says, when you are taking your disputes to the courts, you are taking them before the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're taking it before others, okay, who are okay with all these things listed in verse 10 and who approve of all these things in verse 10, and yet you're taking the issues in the church before them? Paul's baffled by it. Baffled. So the whole thing of we're in the world but not of it, Paul's like, wait a second, do you, does this not register? It should. It should. And so why would we take issues with each other, right? Two spirit-filled Christians dealing with issues and disputes. Why would not we not just handle that with each other and get help from the church instead of going to the unrighteous? Paul says, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. And then at the same time, I love how he does this. He reminds them who they are, right? Remember who you are. Remember where you've come. Remember the change. Be reminded of that. And it should impact how you live. And so look at verse 11. He says, such were some of you, right? Many in Corinth, right? Their story deals with what God has saved them from, what God has brought them out of in verse 10, right? I mean, that's our story, what God has brought us out of. And he says here, such were some of you, but, right? Here's the change. You were washed, okay? That was Paul's experience. In Acts 22, verse 16, Paul tells us of his experience when it says, now why do you delay this was Paul's um, conversion experience. It was asked of him, why do you delay, Paul? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so this washing of sins, when we call on the name of Jesus to save us, we're washed cleansed of our sins and forgiven. Isaiah 1, verse 16, it says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil or your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. That's what God was telling the people in Israel. And then he says in verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be a uh, uh, white like wool. They'll be made like wool. That's what Jesus does when he saves us. We're washed. We're cleansed. And Paul says, that's Corinth. That's who you are, believers. And not only that, you're sanctified in Jesus. That means you've been set apart. You've been made holy. You've been made holy. In your salvation, you've now been set apart for the purposes of God, not for the purposes of this world, but for the purposes of God. So you are different. You're different. You, you once used to get drunk, but you were sanctified by Jesus, and there's been a decisive break. You used to be, this is the story of those in Corinth, homosexual, but now you were sanctified by Jesus. There's been a decisive break. You used to be a swindler, one who's greedy for money, but you were sanctified in Jesus. There's been a decisive break. That's what it means to be sanctified, and that's who those in Corinth were. And then he says, not only that, 
but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, meaning you were made right. You were made right. You were made righteous. You were rendered right. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus did for us. He took us, verse 10, right? He took our sin, the sins in verse 10, all our sins, and he put them on his son. And his son paid the price of those sins, the penalty of those sins, which is death, the deserving wrath of God, which we all deserve. We all deserve. Whether it's for a lie or, or whether it's for adultery or whether it's for cheating or whether it's for lying, whether it's disrespecting your parents. I mean, fill in the blank. All that Jesus took and paid the price and the penalty of those sins so that we could be made right with him. That's what Jesus did. And Paul reminds him of this. This is who you are. This is what has happened. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You don't deserve it. For it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, and this is not of ourselves, but it is a free gift of God. And so Paul is calling the church at Corinth, in light of who you are, may you live and may you act and may you handle conflict according to the same grace that has saved you. Paul says, this is who you are. Because of who you are, we handle things this way. Because we have the Holy Spirit, because we have the Word of God. So today, let's be reminded of the gospel that we've been washed, that we've been sanctified, that we have been justified. This is who we are now. And may we let it impact what we do, how we think, how we see things, how we even handle conflict. Because he says, do you not know that even you're going to be a part of what Jesus is going to do in the future, the coming judgment? You will sit on his throne and you will be part of judging unbelievers and, and judging angels. Do, do you not see all that God has for you? Think that way. Think with a kingdom mind. And so when it comes to the petty issues, the trivial issues, the things that we deal with with each other, sometimes the big issues as well, may we think about them rightly. And may it not always be about being right. And may it not always be about getting what we think we deserve when it comes to how we relate with one another. Church can be messy. It can be messy. But we're called to handle the messes with grace and with love. To love each other how we want to be loved. To love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what God has called us to. If you're here today and you hear these last verse, you hear about this, this story and this testimony of the church at Corinth, what Paul says, that you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been set apart to have a relationship with God. You've been justified. You, you now are in right standing with God. If you're here today, 
I want you to ask yourself, are those three things true about me? Are they true about me? Have I been washed? Have I been sanctified? Have I been justified in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? Has that happened to me? The Bible says this. It says if, if we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe that, that God raised Jesus from the dead, that we will be saved, that we'll be washed from our sin, that we'll be sanctified, to, to have a relationship with God, that old life is gone, now we have this new life, we're a new creation, and we're justified, we're made right with God. If you're here today and you've never experienced that, the Bible says to believe, to trust in Jesus and his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection that overcame death, that we would believe that and believe that he died for us and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. When we do that, you can stand. Just like in verse 11, Paul says this is the testimony of the Corinthian church, he says, hey, listen, this can be your testimony. You can stand and say, I'm washed, I'm sanctified, I'm justified. So if you're here today and, and, and you cannot say those things about yourself, I pray that God draws your heart to himself and that you would turn and trust in him today. Let's pray.